Hi, this is attorney Jamie Miller, and welcome to another edition of the Miller Law Chronicle podcast. Today, we are going to have a really great podcast with Elliot Gale of the GAJP Law Firm. Elliot works with our clients here at Miller & Miller in two different circumstances. Number one, when a client retains our office for as little as $100 down, we are going to connect them with Elliot because Elliot's firm and Elliot, they focus on consumer protection. So what they're going to do when someone retains Miller & Miller is they are gonna work with our client, review their credit report, make sure we send certified letters out to all the creditors to keep those creditors off of our clients back immediately upon the client retaining our office. If the creditor then continues to bother our clients, we're going to pursue litigation against those creditors so that they don't do it and don't continue pursuing our current clients and clients in the future. And then at the end of a bankruptcy, when a client's debts are discharged, the consumer protection lawyers at Gale's firm, at Elliott's firm, is going to sit down with our clients, review the credit report, and make sure that the credit report properly reflects that all of the debts that were listed on the bankruptcy have been discharged. And most importantly, they want to make sure that the information on the credit report is accurate and correct. They're gonna coach our clients on how to object to incorrect items on a credit report and then pursue action against the credit reporting agencies, perhaps if those reports on the line items aren't getting corrected. So it's really a great service to our clients and I just wanted to spend this time with Elliot to explain it to our listeners and our clients so everybody understands it. If you like Miller Law Chronicles, which I hope you do, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment and subscribe to us on YouTube. You'll get notifications of upcoming and new podcasts. And also like us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate your listenership. We've been at this for almost a year now. Our listenership continues to grow. And I really hope in particular that you enjoy this podcast with Elliot Gale. Thank you. Hi, this is attorney Jamie Miller and welcome to another edition of the Miller Law Chronicles podcast. Today, we really have the privilege of talking to my friend, Elliot Gale, who is a lawyer that specializes in consumer protection. Elliot and his firm, GAJP, have been a friend and partner of Miller & Miller for many years now, and we're excited to talk about the TCPA, the FDCPA, the Wisconsin Consumer Act, FICRA, all of these different acronyms that I hope after my conversation today, you'll have an understanding of what they mean and of course, how they help our clients and other consumers in the state of Wisconsin. And Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you and I have known each other for several years, and I'd like to take a moment just to, you know, have us tell, have you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you grew up, 
how you got into this consumer protection area. Sure. So I currently reside in Northern California in a town called Rockland. I've been practicing law. I always say over a decade because after a decade, I feel like we start losing count, but it's probably like 15, 16 years at this point. I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Florida, Go Gators, and then transferred to Santa Clara University for law school. Post-law school, I did a little bit of personal injury work. I don't have anything against that field. I just, it just wasn't for me at the time anyway, at that firm. So I found a, another job working at a local consumer bankruptcy law firm. And that is where sort of my introduction to consumer bankruptcy and consumer protection began. That particular firm tended to be a high volume filer. And when you're dealing with that kind of volume, you tend to sort of learn things very quickly. And there are a lot of issues, right? So, you know, if you're doing, if you're not doing as much work, you may not actually run into all of the different issues that can exist in your sort of your typical consumer bankruptcy, right? But I used to joke, like I've pretty much seen it all just in terms of consumer bankruptcy and consumer protection. And what we found was that there was this whole area surrounding consumers that are looking at filing bankruptcy that a lot of bankruptcy attorneys just frankly aren't looking at, or it's just not in their wheelhouse, right? And this is coming from somebody who's, who's practiced consumer bankruptcy laws that that particular practice I think is administrative where, you know, it, some people just don't like to litigate, right? So we found that a lot of times uh, creditors would violate certain protection or consumer protection laws, both before, during, and after uh, consumer files bankruptcy, right? So we started looking at those issues and sort of started dipping our foot in the water, as they say, and then just sort of dove in, in the, into the deep end, did that for a while, and then... Gosh, five years ago, my partners and I formed uh, GAJP and sort of took that knowledge that we had gained, tweaked it, and then started this practice here. Right. And are you do your work throughout the whole country? So it's not only in California. You right. So we're when we first started, we were just in California, but we've become a multi-jurisdictional practice. So we practice in California, Wisconsin, Missouri, Michigan. And we're looking to expand into North Carolina um, and Kentucky as well, are the next yeah. two areas. It's been a wonderful partnership. And, you know, you and I have been doing bankruptcy law for a long time and dealing with bankruptcy clients and, and helping bankruptcy clients. And when a new bankruptcy client comes in for a discussion about how we can help with their debts, they're concerned about two things. The first thing is, how quickly can you get the creditors off of my back? Keep them from calling, keeping from keeping them from, you know, bothering me, my family, that type of thing. Stop wage garnishment. And then the next question is, well, what's the impact on my credit going to be after I file bankruptcy? And as a practitioner for all these years, you know, we, we did a great job of filing bankruptcies and helping people discharge the debt. But I've always felt like I wasn't meeting all of their needs because I really wanted to help stop creditors as soon as possible 
and also improve their credit. And so I searched and, you know, just looked around and really built a great relationship with you and JJP and Scott and others at your firm and feel um, blessed and just really happy that we built this relationship because it's really something that is very valuable to our clients. And I want to talk to you about that. So yeah. when a client retains us, and this is even before we get to the point of filing their case, we refer them over to you. And tell me a little bit about what happens once a bankruptcy client pre-filing gets sent over to your office. Take me through that process. Yeah. Bit. So we're going to, we're going to get on the phone with, with your clients and we're going to uh, pull their credit report and look at all of the different creditors that they have. And we're going to send notices out, right? And then those notices are basically going to say, look, we've retained counsel and we don't want you to contact us any anymore. And then if they do, then that's a problem, right? So this is what we call sort of a win-win. We want the calls to stop, right? So hopefully the goal here is that once creditors receive the notices that we mail, the calls will stop. If they don't stop, that's when we will become involved. And once our staff goes through a credit report with your clients, we will go sort of literally creditor by creditor. And if there are certain creditors, for example, um, that we may not want to send a notice to, right? So for example, if you have a mortgage, we don't, and you want to keep your house and you want to continue making payments on that, we're not going to send out a notice, right? But if your unsecured, your typical unsecured credit card is just calling you incessantly, that's somebody we're going to send a notice out. And then we'll follow back up. Once the notices go out, we will follow back up with your client to verify whether or not the calls have stopped. If the calls have stopped, great. We've done our job you've provided a great service for your client and they sort of get a breathing spell before their bankruptcy is filed. Right. Um, and go ahead. Oh, and if, if it's not stopped, if they haven't stopped. Right. I think a lot of people, when they're getting collection calls, there's this sense of hopelessness, right? Like, is this ever going to end? I'm getting sort of abused. Uh, but if we're involved, there's sort of an active tracking process involved. So there's not this feeling of just hopelessness, right? And we'll send out multiple notices. Right. And that's important because in our own, when a client hires us, it may take some time. You know, filing bankruptcy has become complicated. So if I get hired by somebody today, it could take 30 or 60 days to get their case filed because maybe coming up with all the documents can be a challenge. Maybe there's some sort of legal strategy that makes us want to wait 60 or 90 days to file. Maybe there's a hard, maybe the client's having a challenge coming up with the attorney's fees to get the case filed. And so at our office, if someone just puts $100 down, we're going to get them over to GAJP and your team and you're going to send out these letter letters to the creditors. And what does the letter say? I mean, what's why why is the creditor once they get this letter prevented from reaching out to the client? Right. So the letter is going to do a couple of different things. It alerts the creditor that you're represented by counsel and they need to contact your counsel moving forward. It also revokes consent to be called using an auto dialer, and that gets sort of under the the TCPA guidelines. And then once, once they receive that letter, they really should be contacting your attorney, right? And if they're not contacting your attorney, 
there are certain sections of the Wisconsin Consumer Protection Act that are potentially, as well as the TCPA. Right. And so, and I hear this a lot, the client will, you know, retain and we'll reach out to the client. I mean, reach out to the creditor, but sometimes those phone calls will continue, whether it's a, an auto dialed phone, robo call that we use that term. It, and then you were talking about tracking that. What does that mean? If the right. So those yeah. calls. when you're, it's always good to have proof of calls, right? It's very easy for a creditor to sort of say, no, no, we didn't call you. So when we are talking to your clients, we will give them sort of strategies for track, literally tracking the calls, whether or not it's, especially with today's cell phones, it's usually very simple. It's a matter of just taking a screenshot, saving the screenshot, and then sending it to our office. So we have a record of it. And then if we do get into litigation, it's very simple for us to sort of give that proof to the other side and say, look, these are the calls that came in. If you have something different, I'm happy to look at it, but, and oh, by the way, here's the letter too. Right. And I can, you know, I can attest to the fact that a majority of the time when you send those letters out to the creditors, they're going to stop bothering our clients. Yeah. But sometimes those phone calls will continue. And you mentioned a couple different things. Maybe you can just talk briefly about TCPA, FDCPA, Wisconsin Consumer Act, because those are the different laws and statutes that you rely upon to really put some teeth behind right. those letters that you're we're sending to prevent the creditors from bothering our clients. Yeah, so we'll sort of talk about the Wisconsin Act and the FDCPA. They're very similar. Both statutes basically prevent debt collectors and creditors from doing certain illegal things. If I was going to just sort of, generally speaking, you can't harass consumers, right? And that's essentially what the Wisconsin Protection Consumer Protection Act says, along with the FDCPA. And in terms of the harassment, that's where the tracking the phone calls, like the frequency, the amount, that becomes critical in building those cases up. TCPA is a little bit different, whereas the other two statutes are more sort of global in the way they approach calls. The TCPA is really more focused on a per call basis. While the law has recently gone some, the Supreme Court has recently sort of tweaked the definition of an auto dialer. Um, nonetheless, uh, things like pre-recorded calls. So if you're a consumer and you get those annoying calls where you pick up the phone, there's that brief pause, and then there's some pre-recorded message telling you to call somebody over a debt. Like those are the things that, that we track now under the TCPA. Right. And, um, and the TCPA is a great, it's one of those because it is a per call statute, it has some teeth to it and certainly gets um, defendants' attention if they're being sued under the TCPA. Right. And what, and sometimes people will say, well, what's your late relationship with Elliot? Why aren't you doing this? And this area of consumer protection is really specialized. And I've always, wanted to stay in my lane and yeah. do what I do best. And it gives me great confidence when I'm passing along our very valued clients to you and to your firm, that this area of their concern, you know, keeping creditors off of their back and perhaps pursuing damages against creditors that continue to bother 
them, you know, is really where you come in. You guys just do, you know, such a fantastic job and always do what you say you're going to do, which is really appreciated. No, I, and it, and it yeah, works. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it really works. I mean, it's like, I can't tell you the stress that I see on my client's face when they come in and they're just so anxiety ridden by the continued creditor calls and to be able to tell them that we have a solution to help them even before they file bankruptcy is just incredibly valuable. Yeah. And I appreciate that very much. And so we talk about what happens pre-filing and if I can kind of go to where do we go after? So one of my other goals with my own personal practice, and I know you're, you are the same way, you know, there's a lot of bankruptcy lawyers out there that file bankruptcies. You know, filing bankruptcy can be a challenge, but it's not impossible. You know, it's, you're going to have different experiences with different lawyers. And one of the, our goals in my vision and our core values is to really help a client get their credit score up to 720 after their case is done. Yeah. I just don't want to file a case, discharge the debt, have the client 18 months later, go to go apply for a car loan and not be able to get a car loan. So once case is discharged, so someone files a chapter seven and wiping out their debts or doing a chapter 13 and making payments towards their debt. But once they get that discharge, tell me a little bit about where you step in to help our clients. Yeah. So the, one of the unfortunate parts of the bankruptcy process is that there are certain expectations that consumers and the law sort of set out, right? And that is a fresh start. And the whole point of filing a bankruptcy is to essentially relieve yourself from the collection activity and relieve yourself from the debt. But sometimes, for whatever reason, certain trade lines or certain accounts just aren't updated properly, right? Whether it be, you know, still reporting a balance, still reporting late payments, not actually reporting that the debt has been discharged, sometimes reporting the debt discharged when it wasn't discharged, uh, depending upon the nature of the debt. There are all sorts of inaccuracies that exist on credit reports post-bankruptcy. Uh, and this, I think, is where sort of like the real, for lack of a better word, magic of what we do, like the, the intersection of bankruptcy and credit reporting is really like our niche. And, I, and it is, a, it's, it, you know, I joke sometimes that I practice in a niche of a niche because it's rare that you, bankruptcy in and of itself is a niche practice. And then on top of that, when you start adding something like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it becomes even more specialized, right? But we've been doing it long enough. Thankfully, I've, we've developed a good relationship with the credit reporting agencies themselves. I think that we're well known in this area of the law and well respected. So if there's something inaccurate on your credit report, I'm fairly confident that we're going to be able to remedy that inaccuracy. Um, and so if a client files bankruptcy and let's say they have a debt with Discover, you know, $7,000 debt with Discover, they filed bankruptcy, they've gone through the process, they got their discharge. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the credit report reflects that that debt has been wiped out? 
So under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it essentially puts the, the onus is really on both the data furnisher and the credit reporting agency. Under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, credit reporting agencies, that the three main ones that everyone's probably heard of, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, they're supposed to have policies and procedures to maintain maximum accuracy, right? The reality is most of the time, all three credit reporting agencies are alerted when a consumer files bankruptcy. Certain data furnishers, I won't get into, I won't name names on this podcast, but there are large banks that track every consumer filing, every consumer bankruptcy filed. They just do that with social security numbers, right? So if you're a practicing consumer bankruptcy attorney, and maybe you have that moment where like, oh, we didn't add this. Well, depending upon who the creditor is, they have notice of that anyway, right? So when you receive notice of the bankruptcy, there are certain things that data furnishers should report to the credit reporting agency during the pendency of the bankruptcy. And then once the discharge is entered, the data furnisher should um, update the report again to alert potential lenders that the debt has been discharged. And it, you know, it gets highly technical in terms of, you know, the actual credit reporting language, the actual guidelines, but that's sort of like where we come in, right? We're very good at looking at credit reports, seeing what is and isn't accurate, and then sending out dispute letters, which is required. Congress in their infinite wisdom, in order to properly tee up a lawsuit against the data furnisher, you have got to dispute the account with the credit reporting agencies. And I think this is very important for consumers to know, understand what I just said. If you have an issue with, well, you use Discover, we'll say that you have a Discover account, right? If you dispute that inaccuracy directly with Discover, you can't turn around and sue them under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's a little ridiculous. You have got to send your dispute to the credit reporting agency. Um, and a lot of times, I some you know sometimes when we talk to consumers who have tried to do this on their own, they miss that step, right? They've because why? I mean, if you have a problem with Discover, the last thing you're thinking of is going over to Experian and explaining that problem. But that's the way the law is set up, so that's what we that's what we do. And so somebody files bankruptcy, they get their discharge, they have the Discover on their credit report. It's not reporting properly. You'll review the credit report with them. Yep. You'll notice that there's a dispute. So does the client send the dispute letter to, so, to the credit bureau? Or do you do that? So we we will send the dispute letter to your clients for review. And your clients review that dispute letter and your clients sign it. That's important. And then we will go ahead and mail that dispute out for them. But every one of your clients reviews exactly what accounts are being disputed, why those accounts are being disputed, and nothing gets sent unless your clients authorize us to do so. And then they send the dispute gets sent in. And then what's the how much time is the credit? So the, the credit reporting agencies have um, about a month, 30 days to either fix it or delete it. And in theory, once a credit reporting agency receives a dispute, they're supposed to send that dispute to the actual data furnisher or creditor that's reporting the information. If that data furnisher or creditor doesn't respond to the dispute, legally, the credit reporting agency is supposed to delete 
or remove the trade line. And for anyone that's listening out there, this is sort of, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for just a second. A lot of times you will have what I call these fly-by-night credit repair organizations and all they are doing is essentially sending out frivolous disputes on otherwise accurate but derogatory trade lines in the hopes that once the credit reporting agency sends the dispute, the data furnisher doesn't respond and then those trade lines get removed. There are all sorts. That's fascinating. So there are all sorts of issues with that paradigm, the least of which is non-compliance with Credit Repair Organization Act. As a consumer, you those types of disputes sometimes get flagged. And then as a consumer, you're sort of put on the naughty list and these things sort of go on forever. So I would stress that in terms of what we're doing, we are only disputing accounts that are inaccurate. If you have, you know, I'd like to help everyone, but the reality is if you have an otherwise derogatory account that happens to be accurate, we cannot send a dispute out uh, because there are multiple reasons. The biggest and most obvious is it's technically illegal to do that. (laughs) So we sort of pride ourselves on being above board here. So we don't send those types of disputes out. Anything that we're doing, there is a legitimate valid inaccuracy and that's why we're disputing it. And what does, if someone files bankruptcy and they discharge a credit card debt, what should the trade line say if it's accurate? Ooh, that's a very good question. So there there are a couple of key fields that we will look at. And for, just bear with me if I get a little bit too technical, right? So the first and foremost, the debt should reflect that it is discharged. There There should be a notation on the trade line that the debt is discharged. This is a field that's called the consumer information indicator. That is the field that gets changed once a consumer files bankruptcy. That field is updated to show the debt is in a pending bankruptcy. Um, And then that field is again updated once the discharge has been entered to show the debt is discharged. That's the first thing, right? We'll look at the balance. The balance should reflect a zero. The past due balance should also reflect a zero. And then we will also look at the payment history profile or the payment history. That's the section that literally shows it's usually, um, it can be as much as four years of payment history, but sometimes it's only 12 to 24 months. All negative reporting should stop at the filing of the petition. What happens post-petition pre-discharge, I will just simply say is still gray because of the case law that's out there. But post-discharge, there should not be any derogatory reporting in the payment history. And we look for all of those things. And that's a big deal. There's actually, there's a class action lawsuit that was filed some time ago that where credit reporting agencies understand that certain debts need to be updated to reflect zero balances and zero past due balances. So those types of cases, thankfully for consumers are becoming more rare, uh, but they still exist. Right. And what's the impact on someone that's filed bankruptcy, they've wiped out the debt and there's something that's inaccurate on the credit report and it just stays that way. Yeah. So I'm going to preface, the lawyer in me is going to preface that I don't hold myself out to be a credit expert in the sense of, you know, if this happened, I don't work for FICO. Right. Right. Anecdotally speaking, though, I can tell you that I have had, I've seen 
clients where we fix these things and their score may jump 20 to 40 points, right? I mean, it's a big deal. The idea that you can't have a good credit score prior to your discharge in a chapter 13, hogwash. I know because I've seen it. I've literally seen a consumer have a 700 credit score in the middle of their chapter 13. It is possible. But it's also important to realize, I think consumers, well, let's get it. So this idea of a credit score, once you start getting into this area of practice, you'll very quickly learn that the idea of a single credit score just it doesn't exist, right? Um, FICO has multiple scoring models. I think there are actually like over 20 of them. And depending upon the debt, I'm sorry, the type of loan you're applying for, will dictate which FICO scoring model is applied. Why does that matter? Well, depending upon what type of loan you may be applying for, on paper, your credit score may look great, right? But because of the type of loan you're applying for, this little inaccuracy down here that is otherwise not necessarily affecting your FICO score may raise a red flag and prevent you um, from qualifying for a loan. And that's not made up. I'm quoting a case uh, or factually that has happened to one of my clients in the past where they had, he was either a very high 700 credit score or an 800 credit score and were not qualifying for a secured loan because the payment history profile was at best ambiguous in terms of whether or not somebody was making a payment. So that's why it's really important the consumers look at their credit reports post bankruptcy to make sure all of these little things are fixed. I think it's extremely important to have a good high credit score, right? We all should strive to get to the 720 and I think that's great. I would also add on to that. Not only should you be trying to raise your credit score, even something that may look like it's not necessarily impacting your score may still impact your ability to get a loan. And frankly, that is the definition of an inaccuracy under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's not, the Fair Credit Reporting Act does not cite FICO, right? Whether or not something is inaccurate is whether or not it will impact your ability to get a loan. That's yeah. a long-winded answer. Sorry. Sometimes I ramble. No, I love your passion. I, yeah. I just love how this is, I can just see it's part of you. And that you just have a, a real strong passion to help helping consumers and those that file bankruptcy. And uh, you and I share that passion. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to our clients to talk about anybody listening in the podcast world that, you know, filing bankruptcy, there is help. Listen, bankruptcy isn't the solution for everyone. But if you go down that path and you need help, it's just so great to know that Elliot's out there, that your firm JJP is out there and certainly willing to help people before they file their case, but even more importantly, to help people reach the dream of an improved credit score after bankruptcy is done so they can always buy that house that they've always wanted or their car at a fair and reasonable interest rate. And I really applaud you for that and thank you so much for the service over the years and look forward to working with you long time into the future yeah absolutely totally looking forward to it great thank you so much yeah